0: guys welcome back this is week 61 and you are at the true crime b &B. i'm bailey and i'm beth and bailey is the bad guy today yes i am and you're probably used to that all right right. let's
1: do it i'm taking us to canada okay i'm going to tell you about the murder of lucy termal she was born september 5th 1967 in quebec she moved at the age of 20 to a town called banff alberta okay it's a huge mountain range there in Alberta and it's got a huge lake as well. So it's just a lot of people go there for the summer and also the winter depending on what
0: you want to do there. I've heard of Banff and I'm not sure why I've heard of Banff. I don't okay. know if there's some sort of an archaeological site or something there.
1: I don't know. I just know it's popular for skiing and hikers and stuff like that. Okay. And Banff itself only has a population of people who live there year round of 5,000. So everybody else that comes in and out is usually just a tourist or a seasonal worker
0: okay so very small it's a little bit like that town where Brian stuka disappeared
1: yep exactly so she traveled there at the age of 20 in 1987 and immediately began working as a taxi driver around the town okay mostly at night because it is a resort town and people who want taxis generally are intoxicated or whatnot not from the area (laughs) yeah
0: not that we know that from experience what
1: never (laughs) So on May 16th, 1990, three years after she moved there, so she's now 23 years old, she started her usual shift at 8 p.m. and successfully picked up several clients, earning her about a total of $100 that evening. Okay. At 1.40 a.m., she pulled up to a place called Works Nightclub, which is downtown in Banff, and while she's waiting in the lot to pick up whoever called her, she noticed one of her coworkers also driving a taxi, is a few spots over. And so she starts talking to him, just passing the time until these people come outside. And that coworker was named Larry. And they spoke briefly until a man and two women approached Lucy and asked if she was the person who came to pick them up. And she said, yep, go ahead, get in the back. And they took off in the taxi. At this point, she got on her radio and talked to her boss saying, this is the destination I'm headed to, it should take me this long, and then I'll tell you once I drop them off.
2: Okay.
1: A little while later, Larry also phoned in to Lucy's boss and asked if he had heard from her since picking up her last clients, the one man and two women. And the boss said, nope, I haven't heard back, so let me go ahead and phone in to her car and see if she answers, and she wasn't responding back to him. Uh Uh-oh. So Larry, who's still in the area, decides, I'm going to go, I know where she was headed to, so I'm going to go that route and see if I see her car anywhere, and apparently she also lived on that route, so he thought maybe she just dropped them off, went home, and just isn't in the car anymore. Okay. Larry starts going down that road, and he doesn't see her anywhere along that route, but he was right on the road, and somebody at the next spot over at the red light was in her car, but it wasn't Lucy, it was a man now driving the car. Oh boy. So he starts following this person, and at first he's confused. He thinks, okay, is there another taxi that just looks a
0: lot like Lucy's? Is it a taxi, or is it a... Because I know we didn't have rideshare back then. hmm So is it a taxi that's a marked taxi with, like, the little light on top and all that?
1: It was all white and all of them were the exact same and they had in black taxi taxi on the side okay. with the number on the side okay
0: so it was clearly it a was taxi. clearly
1: a taxi and he recognized it as the one that lucy would drive because he knew her number or whatever the- yeah so now there's a man that he doesn't know driving her car and he decides to
0: follow him as far as he can Hopefully he's calling into the dispatcher and saying, "Hey, yeah, he saw Lucy's car, and it's not Lucy driving."
1: He did because as he was following him, he called over to the boss, who had been like the middleman between the two the whole night, saying, "Okay, is there another taxi in the area of like a different guy that started recently or something? I don't know about." And the boss said, no, it's just you and Lucy out tonight. I don't know who else that could be. Mm-hmm. And so that's when he starts going, oh, I need to catch this yeah, guy. Yeah, and
0: we need the police to be coming here.
1: And it turns into a full-on car chase where he ended up going 80 miles per hour. So did it seem like the guy knew he was following oh, him? Oh, yeah, he knew it was onto to him. He okay. W- but finally, Larry was able to corner the guy on a dead-end road, and the guy jumped out of the driver's seat and ran off into the woods, and Larry was not able to find him after that point. At this time, unknown to Larry, a few miles across town, someone had been calling the police to report a body that they had found laying in the middle of the road. It was 23-year-old Lucy Termal, and she had been stabbed 17 times in her neck.
0: Oh, my God. Oh. Just- and they just dumped her out of the car in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm.
1: At this point, when the police started sectioning off the road where she was found, her boyfriend had actually been on his way home at the time to their apartment, and he had to go around on a back road because he saw the white sheet on the road, and he didn't realize that was his girlfriend. Of course he didn't realize that. It's just heartbreaking. Just those little details like that get to me, I guess. Yeah, because... He doesn't know his whole world's about to disimplode. Yeah. (sighs) Ugh. That's awful. Yeah. Police discovered, once they found her body, that she had been robbed, with her murderer only getting away with around $130 and her jacket. All of that to stab
0: somebody 17 times. Well, I don't understand any Any amount amount of money money. being worth killing someone for.
1: But when it feels like it's just pennies, it's like, you clearly have no
0: concept of human life. No, because, you know what, if you told her I will kill you or you can give me $130 and your jacket... She would have happily given them $130 (sighs) and her jacket to not be killed, and then her life would have been okay.
1: Police also decided to take a look inside of her cab, obviously. They found it was very obvious that a violent struggle had happened there because it was just blood everywhere on the Uh. dash, on the steering wheel, on the seats. However, once they took the blood samples and submitted that to the crime lab, they realized none of it came from Lucy. So whoever this guy was, she got him pretty fucking good in her scuffle with him. Wow. Yeah. So somehow... Somehow, I don't know if she cut him or if he cut himself because she was fighting him so hard.
0: Yeah, but then somehow she got stabbed 17 times and now she's in the middle of the road.
1: They also found the murder weapon the same night discarded in a driveway and it was described as a distinct hunting knife. And I think they meant distinct as in it was clearly a custom knife that... Not everybody would have. Right. And the last known drop-off spot that Lucy had been driving to was a nearby hotel. So that raised suspicion that whoever had killed her had been someone visiting the town or somebody who was a seasonal worker working at the hotel. Okay. During the investigation, they went ahead to that hotel and interviewed all of the men that worked there. And they were surprised and overwhelmed because 70% of the young men working there as a seasonal worker had a criminal history. (laughs) Oh, wow. So they're like, we don't even know who to look at first because, I mean, I guess if you're a transient person, that probably would make sense that that's the lifestyle you chose after having
0: run-ins with the law. But still, I mean, even in 1987. 1990
1: at this point, yeah. In
0: 1990, they had background checks. They had ability to find out if you're on some database someplace. Mm -hmm. They didn't have nearly the interconnectivity that we have now, though.
1: But because there were so many people, they didn't even know who to narrow down as a suspect, it went cold for two years. A few years later, it broke back open in 1992 because an anonymous person called in saying that they suspected their roommate had committed the murder. The reasoning being, the knife found had been the exact same knife his roommate had had. And also, the roommate had previously worked at the hotel, which is now called Banff Springs Hotel. Okay. At the time of the murder, the police had collected DNA from all of the male employees as they interviewed them, except for one employee, Hmm. who refused at the time to submit any DNA, and that was his right at the time.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's probably most people's right, but if he's the only one who didn't give it, that does make him... Yeah, you would think... It kind of points the finger at him a little bit. Like, why not? Why won't you? Yeah, what did you do that you think you're going to get caught for?
1: They're like, huh, funny that the one person who didn't submit any DNA at that time, now his roommate's calling and saying, yeah, I never saw that knife that he had ever again, and he worked at that hotel. And that guy's name was Ryan Jason Love, who at the time of Lucy's murder was only 18 years old. Ooh. And he had a record already by then? Nothing super violent until then. But after that tip was called in two years later, the police went and asked him for a DNA sample again. He refused. And they had laws at the time where you couldn't force somebody to give it up. So they decided to go undercover. <laughs> and I loved this. They posed as a gang. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That sounds believable. I, I just try to imagine these police officers playing gang members.
0: It's so funny to me at first time. Uh, yeah, I wonder what nicknames they gave you. Sorry. I know. Just... You know, it's like cutthroat. Scarface. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's... so they acted like a gang.
1: And they told Ryan that they were recruiting new members, and they would like to recruit him and ask him some questions. And so Ryan fell for it and starts spilling his guts to them. And during their recruiting process, one of the officers jokingly to scare Ryan plucked some of his hairs out of his head and then stuffed it in his pocket. Oh, wow. That's how they got his DNA and hair on file to confirm that that was his blood found in the car.
0: Well, good on them, but I, I'm amazed that he was stupid enough to fall for this right after they came to him and asked him.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's only 20 years old, though. He's just an idiot. You should <laughs>
0: still have some sort of reasoning skills by the time you're 20 years old.
1: Especially if you are guilty and
0: you know for a fact you murdered a woman two years ago.
1: Yeah. And they know. just
0: asked you for hair, and one of your prospective gang Guy is is yanking hair out of your head. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So he's an idiot then. Yeah.
1: So they sent the hair in. It came back as a match to the blood found in Lucy's car. And in 1994, Ryan Love was convicted of second degree murder and received life in prison, eligible for parole after 20 years. 1996. Once he realized, two years after he was convicted, he realized he wasn't getting out of jail with appeals and stuff. So he finally confessed. And in his confession. He said he had been the man in the group of three people that Lucy had picked up that night. His female friends had been dropped off at a party, and he asked just to go back to his room at the hotel, and so that's why he was alone with her in that car that night. And his motive had been he had a family reunion coming up, and he didn't want his family to know that he wasn't wealthy. He wanted them to think that he was doing really well for himself. And so the only way he could do that was to show up with a large amount of cash.
0: In his wallet. $130 is not a large amount of cash.
1: And I promise you if you show up at 18 years old to your family reunion broke, nobody's gonna be
0: shocked. That's... Especially if you show up in a stolen taxi full of blood.
1: Yeah, I just don't understand. What a stupid plan. He is such a moron. Fucking idiot. And I bet your family's so proud of you now, buddy. Seriously. After 19 years, though, he was released in 2011. So, that's bullshit. <sighs> However, after several domestic violence charges and other crimes against women recently, including Mm. he was taking women home from the bar and raping them, essentially. I am totally shocked that
0: he would do such a thing. Yeah,
1: it wasn't even because he was raping women. It was because he was around alcohol, and that was against his parole. But because of that, they revoked his parole, and he's been sent back to prison as of November of 2022. So he's
0: had no punishment for the actual raping that he was doing. Nope.
1: But well, because the women were intoxicated, they have no way of proving that they didn't give consent, and the women haven't come forward. The reason they know that he was doing this because he was pulled over multiple times by police who were trailing him with intoxicated women in the car.
0: He's a scumbag. He's
1: just a piece of shit, and he is back in prison. But I think it's a shame that he got ten years of freedom after that. Yeah. And that's that's all we got today.
0: And Lucy is gone forever. While that douchebag is out hurting more people.
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: Okay. Well, my story takes place in Wisconsin, so I tried to be as close to you as possible. (laughs) I'm always... Yeah, that is pretty. (laughs) It seems like we always have some connection in between our stories. Terry Jendusa Nikolai is the name she goes under now. She was... Born and bred in Wisconsin. She is a real Wisconsin girl. You can watch the videos of her and you know immediately where she's from. Okay. (laughs) She was born in 1965 out in the suburbs and she grew up with three siblings in a strong, healthy, loving, two-parent family environment. So she had a great growing up period. Mm -hmm. Terry was a good student. She had tons of friends. She had a likable high energy personality and she was active and just overall had a great life. She graduated from high school and set out for college in 1983 at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside in Summers, Wisconsin. And she quickly drew the attention of many people who just wanted to be her friend. She was just that girl. Mm -hmm. Everybody that met her, liked her, just wanted to get to know her. She was bubbly, friendly, beautiful, likable, and she just had collected a large group of friends. Terry's friends, obviously, spent a lot of their time together socially because in college you just hang out. You go hang out in each other's dorm rooms or whatever, Mm -hmm. you go to bars, you go to pub crawls, and among the people in her group was a young man by the name of David Larson. Over time, as the group got tighter and got to know one another better, Terry and David found that they really liked being around one another, just enjoying each other's company, but it didn't feel right. The timing wasn't right. So while they were good friends, they didn't take the friendship any further, and nothing romantic came of it. Over the years, they got done with school, and they both moved on with their lives, going their separate ways, and eventually dropping out of touch. David had joined the Marine Corps and went off on a tour of duty. Terry met someone and had become involved in a long-term relationship. But in 1995, just as David was discharging from the Marines, Terry's relationship had also happened to end, and by coincidence, they just ran back into one another. Okay. This time, the timing was good. They were both looking for the same things at the same time, they wanted a serious relationship, they were both looking for a family, and they also just remembered how much they had enjoyed being around one another. Because of their history, it seemed like an obviously good pairing. And Terry kind of was feeling her biological clock ticking, if she wanted a biological family. So the long-standing friendship began to turn into a romance. But as the relationship started to become more serious, Terry started to notice some things that she later looked back upon as red flags. But she didn't realize at the time were just things that really might be foretelling other or more disturbing behaviors that she'll see in the future. Because when we're young, we don't always recognize those things. When it's the first time you've seen those things, you're like, well, that's weird but you don't quite always know that that means something bad. Terry was starting to notice that David had developed an issue with some bad temper, and he was having outbursts. She felt like he seemed to have a hint of misogynistic attitude at times, but she chalked it up to the major life changes that he'd been going through and thought that while she didn't like these occasional aspects of David, they were manageable in light of the many other things that she did like about him. But I think most people know that if someone is needlessly rude to the waiter at a restaurant or to the clerk at the store or to the counter person at the hotel, that person has serious character flaws. That's not saying you have to accept terrible service. But if you're with someone who's maliciously taking out their bad day on someone who's just trying to do your job, then you're just a bad person.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Terry noticed over time that people in the service industry were frequent targets of David's nasty temper. She found it very embarrassing. But since he never directed this verbal abuse towards her, she continued to think when it happened, he was just having a bad day. And to some extent, Terry was trying to set a better example for him of how he should be treating people. Mm -hmm. And David managed to continue to make Terry feel like he was a good bet. And they eventually got married in April of 1996 when Terry was 35. She was super excited because they had planned a two-week honeymoon in Hawaii, and they landed in paradise and were starting their honeymoon... Rather than playing the happy groom, David started being the asshole and started directing his anger at Terry. In fact, on the fourth day of this trip, they were getting dressed to go out to see the sights. David disapproved of the outfit that Terry put on, and he demanded she go change it. Well, Terry, a woman in her mid-30s who wasn't used to any man telling her what to do or what she could wear, told him she was going to wear what she likes, and she wasn't going to change. Mm-hmm. David then retorted that now that they were married, Terry was going to do anything he told her to do. And that was when he hit Terry for the first time. Oh. He added to her that she was bought and paid for, and he expected her to be fully obedient. So, How does one go
1: to, like, literal paradise and still be unhappy with life enough to take it
0: out on people? He honestly believed that he owned her, like an object. So as time went on, and they got home from the honeymoon, and he started going on and on about the most ridiculous things one time he found a freezer burnt sausage in the trash because she had thrown it out because it looked gross and he yelled at her about wasting his money and she said back to him well why don't you bring it here and i'll cook it for you of course i'm sure that went over well (laughs) that went over well right another time he screamed at her to put the package of dry spaghetti away before it went bad sitting out on the counter and she pointed out that dry pasta always sits at room temperature, and that it wasn't going to go bad. And he shouted back, "He didn't have to make sense, but she still has to do what he says." So now Terry was seeing the, the Mister Hyde behind Doctor Jekyll.
1: Okay, I know that you're probably he's going to try to hurt her at some point, but I'm really hoping she's the one who stabs <laughs> him
0: in the throat. Cause I can't. <laughs> okay,
1: well, he
2: continue. deserves
0: it for sure. Mm-hmm. They'd been starting the relationship, aside from his weird hostility towards some people. Up until recently, it had seemed good. Mm -hmm. He'd been charming. He'd been sweet. He seemed to have everything together. He was an air traffic controller, so he had a really responsible job. But during the honeymoon, she had started to see the signs of control, the earliest red flags when it comes to many, many abusers. And during the first year of her marriage to David, as she started to feel confused and distressed by who he seemed to reveal himself to be, Terry thought, She would just try to do things a little differently. Just little things differently to try to acquiesce, Mm -hmm. to keep him from getting upset about these dumb things, and maybe then things would be okay. But he would berate her for the towels not being folded how he liked them. He would yell at her if the curtains weren't perfectly pulled back or if they were asymmetrical on the window. He would get enraged if she even closed the bathroom door while she was showering or using the toilet. She thought everything could be fine if she could only do what he expected and asked and demanded of her. But over time, that's not sustainable, and she knew it, and she realized it doesn't work that way. No matter what she does, he's always going to find some reason to be angry at mm-hmm. her. I mean, it's not anything she's doing. It's because he's looking for a reason to be mad.
1: Ugh, i lose her.
0: Okay. David's expectation was that marriage was an unbreakable contract. And by saying, I do, that Terry had consented to every rule and demand, every verbal or physical abuse that he decided to inflict upon her. And he thought that if she failed to live up to his expectations, that he had the right to inflict any violent punishment on her as he saw fit. After a period of time, it grew that David now controlled all aspects of her life. He had made Terry get rid of her car, and now she could drive a car, but it had to be one that was in his name. She had been isolated from her friends and her family. He had made her quit her job. He kept the household finances tightly secret and gave her a budget of $25 a week. And at the end of that week... She had to provide receipts to show him where every penny of that $25 had gone because he wanted to make sure she was using it responsibly. She was isolated. She had no money. She had no car. She had no job. She had no contact with her friends. Her basic human identity had been reduced to a shell of the woman that she used to be.
1: I mean, she's literally a slave at this point.
0: Yeah, she's a captive and a slave. But despite the fact that she had no assets and no resources over the years, this would build up to an intolerable level of control for Terry. Mm -hmm. And she did leave him. She would refuse to return until he agreed to attend anger management classes and go to marriage counseling with her. In fact, I think that's a really generous offer on her part, based on his behavior up until now. Mm -hmm. And he agreed to do it. But every time he would agree that this time he would go along with her, wishes. And then once she was back, he would refuse to follow through with it. This happened four times at least. And it's the same trap that so many abused people go through and fall into because they don't really have a lot of options. They're trying to say, this would work for me if you would just stop doing what you're doing. But the abuser is never going to stop. They want to believe they can, but they are never going to stop. And they just get sucked back in. But after almost two years of this chaotic marriage, as Terry was coming to the conclusion she really needed to start making a plan so that she could get away from David permanently, and then she realized that she was pregnant. And while she had concerns about raising a child with her abusive husband somewhere in her heart, she wanted to hope that because David had always wanted to start a family, that having a baby might soften his heart and he might see how wrong his behavior had been. And at first she felt like it had been the right choice because he was significantly gentler and less abusive during her pregnancy, but that was just a temporary change so that he didn't cause her to lose the baby because he did want babies. Mm -hmm. He could stop himself from hurting her while she was pregnant, so it was obviously a choice he was making. Yeah. Their daughter, Amanda, was born in 1997, and afterward David started being abusive to Terry just as before. And the cycle continued, and then another daughter, Holly, was born in 1999. At the end of that year, another day, another fight, another screaming match took place. But this time, it struck Terry that eventually David was going to start hitting and verbally abusing her daughters just the way he did her. Mm -hmm. He was a misogynist, and that was eventually going to make victims of Amanda and Holly. This conclusion that she came to at the end of 1999 was the impetus Terry needed to really make a change in her life. She took what little she could carry, along with her daughters, and escaped the three of them to a women's shelter. She stayed there with the girls, filed for divorce, and tried to figure out what to do next. She also spent this time trying to re-engage with the world. She started making some friends and some new connections, and as part of that drive, she joined a local community choir for social interaction just because it had been so long since she'd been able to do anything for herself. Mm -hmm. It was something that was fun for her, and she just wanted to do it. As Terry started to feel like she might be a person again, and as the divorce proceedings started to move forward, David didn't think he needed to follow the legal proceedings. In his mind, the marriage couldn't be ended through Terry's choice, so he failed to return documents. He told terrible lies about Terry and tried to drag her name through the mud. He was hostile towards the judge and the whole judicial process. He dragged it out as long as possible to make the process more difficult for Terry, hoping that she would just give up and drop it. Mm -hmm. So much so. He pulled so much of this bullshit that he was held in contempt of court for his behavior and for failing to follow directives. But despite David's attempts to thwart it, The divorce was granted and became final on January 31st, 2001. As they walked out of the courthouse on the day it was granted, a surly David told Terry that one day she would regret the divorce. She was scared about that. She knew that he meant what he was saying. Mm -hmm. But at least she wasn't married to this lunatic anymore. This wasn't, however, the end of Terry's dealings with David. David was awarded joint custody of his daughters despite Terry's testimony and affidavits of the abuse she had suffered at his hands. Mm -hmm. So there were to be custody exchanges at David's home, and for the next couple of years, Terry attempted time and again to enforce custody exchanges in public places. Somehow, the court allowed these exchanges to happen at David's house. I have no idea how he had the power to do that. He wanted to still make her feel like he was controlling her life by forcing her to come to his home for every drop off and every pickup of the girls. But since Terry was bitter on romance after the hell he had put her through, he was apparently satisfied that she was still his property and for most purposes he left her alone. But Terry was working through the process of finding out again who she was and she was most definitely not his property. And despite the reticence she had felt about becoming involved romantically with anyone again, she started to notice a man at choir practice. Nick Nikolai had noticed Terry the first day she showed up at the community chorus, but knowing that she was going through a lot of personal things. He befriended her, but he kept his distance and he didn't put any kind of romantic pressure on their friendship. But eventually, the two realized they were great together. He was sweet and protective and respectful. Kind, treated her daughters with kindness and love. He was just an empathetic gentleman. And Terry realized that she loved him. Nick and Terry got married in October of 2003. Terry and the girls were happy. They felt safe. They loved having Nick as part of their family. David, not surprisingly, was not so happy. He was outraged. In fact, he was furious. As far as he was concerned, Terry was still his property. He didn't believe in divorce. And if she was with another man, that was a betrayal to him. And in his mind, it was a betrayal to God. The fact that he had a girlfriend, of course, was inconsequential.
1: Oh, so he's not even alone and bitter.
0: Yeah, he's he's dating. He's got a girlfriend. And I'm sure he's shitty to her, too. Mm. The man always thinks it's okay for the gander, but not for the goose, right? Yeah. So he stewed and complained, bitched and moaned, and got himself more and more worked up over it. He considered himself the victim in all of this. As every narcissist does, the breakup of the marriage was Terry's fault. Mm -hmm. The shared custody, the fact that he didn't have his daughters all the time, that was Terry's fault. The fact that his wife was now betraying him, that was Terry's fault. He decided he needed to get vengeance and he needed to punish Terry. All of this was before he even knew that Nick and Terry had found out on Friday, January 30th, 2004, that they were going to have a baby together.
2: Oh gosh, okay.
0: Holly was four now, Amanda was six by this point, and Terry and Nick were so excited to tell the girls about this news. They had been married just over three months and they could not have been happier. They were just blissful in their lives together. The day after they found out about the pregnancy was Saturday, January 31st, 2004, and Terry was super excited to pick up her girls at David's house. It was a frigid winter Wisconsin day. Historical weather data shows that at 8 a.m., the temperature was about minus 5 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about minus 20.6 degrees Celsius. Nick offered to tag along for the company, but Terry knew that would just make David more hostile and more unpleasant, and so she said, no, thank you, but I'll bring the girls home and we'll tell them the good news. Terry headed out to arrive at 10 a.m. at David's house for the arranged custody exchange. When she arrived and went to the door, he told her the girls weren't quite ready yet. Terry wasn't looking for a confrontation, so she calmly asked him to please tell them to hurry and she would just wait outside for them in this really, really cold weather. For 20 minutes, she paced outside, trying to stay warm in this cold, frosty air, even though the temperature had increased to about plus 5 degrees Fahrenheit. After 20 minutes of freezing outdoors, the front door opened and Terry breathed a sigh of relief. Until she saw the girls weren't actually coming out. It was David telling her the girls were hiding in the house and wanted Terry to come in and find them. Bullshit. Okay. Yeah. Terry knew this was weird because she had not set foot in that house since she had moved out to the women's shelter more than three years earlier. And because today was the third anniversary of their divorce actually being final. She didn't like this invitation to come in at all but she was excited to get the girls back and didn't want to let the girls down if they really were in there trying to play a game with her. So she shrugged off all her feelings of discomfort and stepped into the house. In reality, her two daughters were locked in a back bedroom, sat down to watch a movie, and were crying because they were hungry.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But Terry was just trying to go along with what she thought was their game, and almost instantly upon the front door being closed, Terry felt as if her head had exploded. As she started to fall to the floor, she felt another blow and another. Her ex-husband was screaming at her that she had always claimed he abused her, but now she would know what abuse really is. Mm. And now she understood what was happening. He was swinging a baseball bat with all his strength and bludgeoning her in the head with it. She passed out from the pain and the shock to her brain and went in and out of consciousness for the rest of the story. She vaguely recognized that he was wrapping her in duct tape. While she was still able to speak, she tried to bargain. She would drop the child support. She would stop trying to get full custody. She would give him anything if he would just let her take the girls and leave. But his response to her bargaining was to be enraged that somehow, while he beat the shit out of her with the baseball bat, her sweatpants had fallen down. And he accused her of doing it on purpose to make him look like a pervert. So he's killing her and he's mad that her pants fell down by accident. So he just continued wrapping her with duct tape, pants completely fallen off of her body and now laying on the floor over there. He finished wrapping her up. He picked her up and stuffed her down into a trash bin. He then packed the trash can with snow and loaded her in the trash can up into the back of his pickup truck and threw a tarp over the top of the bin in the bed of the pickup truck. Then he walked back into the house and Terry, who could barely move anything and whose face was fully wrapped with duct tape, remembered she had her cell phone in her jacket pocket. He was inside for a while, so she used her thumbnail to slice the duct tape enough that she could actually get her phone out of her pocket. She had been beaten nearly to death. She was naked below the waist, crouched in the fetal position in snow in the bin. She's shivering, and she's cold. Her eyes were so swollen that even if her face hadn't been wrapped in duct tape, she wouldn't have been able to open her eyes. But still, somehow, Terry had managed to cut the duct tape, and she dialed 911. All she was able to communicate to the 911 operator was the home address of her ex-husband, because she could barely speak. Okay. Multiple times she said that address, until finally the 911 operator got officers and EMS dispatched to the house. After she finished this call, David, unfortunately, had come back out of the house with Holly and Amanda, put them into the cab of the truck, and took off down the street, towing Terry's car behind his truck. As the truck drove away from the house, Terry heard first responders arriving. She was crushed. So close. So close to being saved.
1: Just passed around the road, basically.
0: Police arrived at the house, found no one there, and started asking neighbors what might have been going on at the house and neighbors had quite a bit to say. As the truck made its way down the street, although still going in and out of consciousness and suffering from hypothermia, Terry also called her husband Nick to tell him what had happened to her. She filled him in as best she could through the duct tape still over her face, and then they both hung up, and they both called 911 again. Okay. Coincidentally, the 911 operator who answered Nick's call was the same one who had originally answered Terry's first call. So for Racine County Police... The pieces were starting to fall into place about what was going on with this woman. By the time Terry called 911 the second time, the call was being routed to Milwaukee County 911 and the operator she spoke to was absolutely useless. Terry was barely breathing by this point from hypothermia. When the call was answered, Terry said her ex-husband was trying to kill her. The operator, instead of trying to find helpful information, was just skeptical. She asked where she was, and Terry was so disoriented from the head injuries and the lowering body temperature, and knowing that she's in a truck driving down the road. Mm -hmm. She couldn't describe where she was, other than under a tarp. And then she said, he has me in the back of his Green Dodge 4x4. The 911 operator just assumed that Terry was making a prank call, asking, why don't you just lift up the tarp to see where you are? When Terry said that her hands were taped, the operator smugly asked, Well, how are you holding the phone if your hands are taped together?
1: Okay, I'm sorry. When did they start hiring 12-year-olds for the 911 to Seriously,
0: I listened to this, and it's hard to understand, so I didn't bother with the the audio. Yeah. But it's outrageous that a 911 operator would have that shitty attitude with someone who very well could be dying, which Terry was. Mm Mm-hmm. So Terry, by this point, should have been absolutely unconscious. The fact that she was functioning at all was a miracle, and at times all she could do was just gasp for breath. But this operator wasn't done being an ass yet. Hello? Do you want to talk to me or you just want a deep breathe? Hello? There was no attempt at all to be helpful. The entire 911 half of this call was nothing but snide and hostile. As Terry realized that 911 wasn't coming for her this time, And in between periods of being unconscious, she realized the truck was still moving. She thought, okay, if the truck's moving, maybe there are other cars that will see the truck. Mm -hmm. So she stuck her hand up out from under the tarp, hoping that somebody would see it and go, that ain't right, and intervene. Mm -hmm. But what actually happened was that someone did see it, but it was David. He saw her waving her hand. He pulled the truck over, stopped it, and pulled up the tarp. He smashed her again with the baseball bat, and he warned her that if she tried anything like that again... He would go back and get his .38, which is a thirty eight caliber gun. She knew he had a thirty-eight, so she took the threat seriously. But then there was another blow to Terry's psyche. As he walked back towards the driver's door, Terry's cell phone rang, and David heard it. He returned back to the trash can, and he grabbed it away from her. Now Terry realized she was absolutely, fully alone, without a single way to reach out for any further help, and no one in the world except David knew where she was.
1: But Nick still knows that David has her.
0: Yes, because Nick was in touch with the police.
1: So he's skedaddled out of town, though.
0: Oh, yeah. He's 60 miles away from Racine now. David later stopped the truck again 60 miles from Racine in northern Illinois, where he unloaded the trash bin from the truck bed and opened up a storage unit that he had there in the storage facility. As he moved her into his storage unit, Terry decided she would play dead so that he wouldn't actually shoot her or hit her again. She didn't move. She tried not to breathe. She was already cold at the touch, so this was, in Terry's mind, the only chance that she had left to get out of this alive. David, at this point, doesn't know that she's called 911, unless he checked her phone log, so he probably thinks that he's gonna stick her in there and no one's gonna have a clue where she went. He shoved the trash bin into the storage unit amongst other miscellaneous boxes and totes, and then piled things on top of the bin in the event that, if by some miracle, Terry did manage to get out of the tape and stand herself up. She wouldn't be able to physically get out of the bin.
1: What is with you and the claustrophobia ones? I don't know. It
0: seems to be a theme, doesn't it?
1: You just want to make me lose my sleep at night.
0: Okay. And then he walked out of the storage unit, rolled down the door, and snapped the padlock shut. Terry kept telling herself that she could not die because she needed to get back to her two daughters. Because if she died, who would get custody? What Terry didn't know is that the police actually were doing everything they could to find her. They had mobilized nearly 100 officers to run down leads. The neighbors around David's house had told police that David left towing Terry's vehicle. Volunteers were back in Racine, traipsing through unfinished neighborhood developments just in case he had dumped her in a hole in an unfinished basement that would soon be covered with concrete. Amber Alerts had gone out on the vehicle because David had Amanda and Holly. Terry's car information was known because of Nick. The green Dodge 4x4 vehicle was known because of the neighbors, and pings were sent out trying to get a location on either one of their cell phones. A police search of David's house turned up Terry's pants in the middle of the living room floor, and then bloodstains all over the living room. So there was no chance of him getting away with this. He had to have known that. I don't know that he thinks anybody's called the police yet. That's true. So unless
1: somebody saw him leaving with her or something, then they
0: would Right. And he probably had the truck backed up somewhere where he wouldn't be able to see him sticking the trash can up there.
2: Yes.
0: But still, police had no idea where Terry could be. They had no idea at all. So the police worked all night and they found evidence, but they couldn't find Terry or Amanda or Holly or David Larson. David, like I said earlier, was an air traffic controller, so police decided to go to his workplace to interview people there, see if they could get any kind of new leads for other places to look for Terry and the girls. But what they found when they got there was David going into work for his Sunday shift as if nothing had happened. There was no sign of Terry or of their two daughters, and David was certain that no one could ever outsmart him, so when police asked him to come to the station to be interviewed, he agreed. He told police that he had had no choice but to drop his daughters off at his girlfriend's house because Terry had never shown up to do their custody exchange as expected yesterday. Mm. And in typical narcissist fashion, he again tried to drag Terry's name through the mud, telling police what a terrible person she was, what a liar she was, how she had put him through hell for just years. And he told them how he had finally given up on waiting for Terry and left at 1130 to take the girls to his girlfriend's house except that the police had arrived at his house after Terry's first 911 call, and they had shown up there at 11.03 a.m. So he's saying that he was there for another 27 minutes after the police were actually in his house. Yeah. Now they had caught him in a flagrant lie, and the police had more confidence to challenge him on these other things that they had found that showed he likely had harmed Terry. They did go to David's girlfriend's house, and they found the girls there safe, so that was all okay. They told police they had not seen their mom that day, which was the truth. But the kicker was that when police pointed out to David that he was still wearing pants that were covered with blood, David desperately tried to explain this away by making the ridiculous claim that Terry, get this, Terry had sneaked into his house, attacked him with a hammer, and inexplicably took off her pants in the middle of the living room. And he had managed to prevent himself from being injured at all, but he was forced to hit her 20 times with his baseball bat. But then he couldn't remember what happened after that. He totally blacked out.
1: Okay. That's just... I don't even know.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the police obviously know this is a lie because there's nothing that supports anything of that story. So they told him if there was any chance of her being found alive for his daughter's sake and for his own sake, he needed to tell them where Terry was. But David, not caring about his daughter's future and being willing to risk everything just to hurt Terry, yawned and declined to answer and asked for a break in the questioning. It was more important to him that Terry die than to save himself from the murder charge. So
1: he's literally just stalling so that hopefully the yeah. more time that passes, she will pass.
0: Yeah. But it turned out to be kind of a good thing that he asked for a break. Because now that they had the blood on his pants and they found her pants and they found the blood all over the living room, they had enough to detain him. So when he asked for a break, now he was going to go to a detention cell. And when you go to a detention cell, they take your personal effects. Okay. You don't go in there with your wallet and your belt and your shoelaces. Mm-hmm. You go in there in whatever they leave you The way with.
1: that you came out and go, Mama. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe it was a little more than that. But anyway, officers took his personal belongings. They put him in the lockup and gave him the break as the law required for them to do. When they searched through his belongings in his wallet, they found a business card for a storage unit in Wheeling, Illinois, 60 miles south of where David lived. The police called the storage facility and asked. And the storage facility told them that David did have a unit there and had actually accessed that unit only hours ago. Police asked the storage facility clerk to please go check the Larson storage unit and listen at the entrance for anything unusual. After David had left her there in the storage unit, Terry had waited until it was quiet, called his name to check if he was still there, and when he didn't answer her, she tried as hard as she could to scream. It was really hard for her because she couldn't get much breath, her body was shutting down, but she did everything she could to get any kind of sound to come out of her body. So when the clerk went and listened outside the door... He heard diminishing sounds of someone who was in agony and feared that she was going to die there. So when he returned to the phone, the clerk reported that he did hear something and it sounded to him as if someone might be trapped inside of that unit. Racine County police jumped on the road, but told the clerk to call his local Wheeling Illinois police at the same time because someone needed to get inside of that unit immediately. When Wheeling police busted open the storage unit only minutes later, they didn't initially see anything that looked like a trapped person, and they didn't hear anything at this point either, except that an officer noticed a trash bin that was duct taped shut for some reason. So they cut the tape, opened the trash bin, and found Terry inside about 1 p.m. on February 1, 2004. Terry had been trapped, half naked, packed in snow, gravely injured from all of those baseball bat blows inside of this freezing trash bin for over 26 hours by this point.
1: Wow, a whole day?
0: And she was against all odds still alive. Wow. But she was also so injured that the first responders feared trying to get her out of the trash bin might cause her even greater injuries. So they were left with little choice but to leave her in that bin until the paramedics made it to her. But at least the lid was off. At least she knew she'd been found.:
1: Yeah, and that can keep you going quite.:
0: a Yeah, bit the, the hope that she had to feel by that point. She was taken to the hospital, where it was found that her body temperature had dropped, and I would have thought it would be worse than this, but it had dropped from 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Her feet were so badly frostbitten that she lost all 10 of her toes. Her organs were stressed and her kidneys were shutting down. Her blood pressure and respiratory rate were dangerously low. Doctors later estimated that if it had taken them even one more hour to find her, that Terry would have been deceased by the time they found her. But on top of all that, Terry had miscarried the baby she had been so excited to tell her daughters about. Not to mention that the mental trauma of being locked in that tiny bin, in the fetal position, in snow, with all those injuries for that long is just inconceivable.
1: Well, you know what I'm thinking is that pregnant women... At least the ones I've known get really warm when they are pregnant. I wonder if that's why she did survive as long as she did. It's possible. Because her body was just naturally
0: warmer because she was carrying. That's a possibility. It's a possibility. I don't know how many months she was. It was probably just a couple of months. But it's a possibility. Not sure. yeah. It's not something to rule out.
1: 26 hours is insane. I thought you were going to say like 7
0: hours or oh something. Oh my god. No, when, they, when I read that and said it was... Some people say 27 hours, but I think it's more like 26. I can't imagine sitting in that way for one hour. Yeah,
1: you would lose your mind. I,
0: I would lose my mind. Just from the claustrophobia, not to mention all that other stuff. Terry spent seven weeks in the hospital. She underwent 10 surgeries. She was in a wheelchair for several more weeks because of the damage to her feet, and this prevented her from getting up the stairs to go tuck her daughters in at bedtime, which really made her mad. She was also mad that she couldn't run anymore. It was estimated that David had hit Terry more than 20 times with the baseball bat. Police also theorized that had the crime not been uncovered as quickly as it was, and had Terry not been found, that from Larson's air traffic control position, he could look outside and see that storage unit in the distance from where he sat at his desk. Uh. He would have been able to look out the window knowing that Terry was either dead or dying, suffering in horrible and unimaginable pain. So Larson was charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, obstructing child custody, and interstate domestic violence. He was found guilty on all charges. Upon his conviction, he was sentenced to life in prison. He filed an appeal in 2010 with the excuse that some of the charges were state charges and some of the charges were federal charges, but because he wasn't convicted of the same charges at both levels, this did not amount to double jeopardy, and so his conviction was upheld. Shortly after he lost this appeal, it was discovered that David had been planning some medical complaint that he intended to manipulate into an escape plan during transport to medical facility. He's like, oh, you're not going to let me out legally? Well, I'll just get out on my own. And to top it all off, David was found financially liable to Terry for $3 million U.S. dollars and to Nick, Amanda, and Holly for 300000 U.S. dollars, not a penny of which any of them will likely ever see unless it comes from his estate. Yeah. David Larson is still imprisoned at Wapun Correctional Institution in Wisconsin. Okay. In 2008, Nick and Terry were finally able to bring their own new little son into the world. Oh after she had recovered from these grave injuries that she suffered for that horrible 26 hours. Terry says, at times these events feel as if they happened just yesterday, and other times they feel like a lifetime ago. She and her two daughters, Holly and Amanda, both all three went to counseling together and separately, and they all received a lot of support to process the terrible things that had happened to them. Terry's advice for people who fear getting into a new relationship now is, Most people are good. You just need to know the signs to watch out for. Women are strong. They're stronger than they believe they are. And no one, no one at all, deserves to be in a bad relationship. She says the number one thing to look out for in assessing the health of your relationship is someone who wants control of you financially or emotionally and who tries to isolate you from friends or family are huge warning signs. And even small things can be manipulative tactics to keep you away from everything you used to do. For example, if they say, stay home because I wanted to do something with you. This is a guilt trip abusers will use to get you used to not doing anything for yourself. In her current survivor life, Terry is a public speaker teaching women how to avoid and get out of abusive relationships. Since her recovery, she's also become an advocate for victims' rights as well as legislative changes that will protect any victim of domestic violence, either male or female, and wants people to have access to resources to help them handle and escape their relationship And abuser safely. She also helped draft a law that was passed in 2014 that allows deputies to remove firearms from the hands of abusers when they're called out for domestic violence calls and they don't have to wait for a warrant for that. I'm sure it's a temporary confiscation but it's it's a big deal if you think there's danger then the deputy has the right to take that weapon until it's been deemed that they have to give it back. And Terry has publicly said that David Larson ended up being his own victim in this situation. He spent years trying to make her life miserable, trying to control her, and then trying to kill her. But in the end, what he did was to ruin his own life. And I just want to add a small editorial for the end of this very, very long story. For all the cases that we cover where we end up angry about the investigation, Mm -hmm. I want us to always remember this one. Because although the Milwaukee County 911 operator added zero value to the resolution of this, Mm -hmm. the Racine County Wisconsin Police Department seriously brought some kick-ass rock and roll to this because they blew it up and they took care of business. So good good job by you Racine County.
1: I don't know how big that county is but I would imagine being Wisconsin it's not a huge.
0: I don't think it's one of the bigger cities in in Wisconsin.
1: Yeah they probably don't have a whole lot of situations like this so for them to have handled it and have found her alive
0: everything they did sounds like the right thing yeah. so they just did a great job mm-hmm. and so we're seeing county should get a little award for that
1: absolutely
0: and i'm sure that terry thinks the same and i hope that 911 operators having a terrible day hope she's having the day she deserves <laughs> absolutely so that is all i have for you in that story Thank you, guys. This was a pleasure having you here with us today to drag you through th- this claustrophobic <laughs> nightmare.
1: <laughs> we will be back next week for week 63. to 62.
0: <laughs> and until then, have a great week.
1: And mm. happy St. Paddy's Day. This comes out on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, does it? Yeah, I realized that last night.
0: Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs>
1: And happy birthday to my ex-boyfriend, Michael.
0: (laughs) Oh, and St. Patrick's Day will also be my 10th year anniversary of living in Gorga. What a wild day that's going to be for us. Seriously. (laughs) Lots of reasons to get drunk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys.
0: Bye, guys. Okay, this is the sound check to see how annoying that leaf blower is outside down the street getting louder i think he's coming close (laughs) if he's gonna get this close you might as well
1: blow us blow
0: me (laughs) blow me that was a little weak
1: (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know where i was going at any point in that sentence okay (laughs) go ahead get in the back and they took off in the taxi without her no, sorry, with Lucy driving. <laughs> Corner the man on a road with no end, no exit, and the man oh, just no end.
0: <laughs> I went through the desert on a road with no end.
1: Trying to like I can't think of another way to A dead
0: uh, end. A, a, that's the word.
1: <laughs> I think it was just like gotten fights,
0: fist fights with friends or enemies, but I guess. <laughs> I guess I just totally lied to you about her age. What? <laughs> I told you she was twenty-eight.
1: She aged six years in one year. Well, That's she was with David. You are. Haven't I we all you had this? that relationship where you aged ten years and you're like Every
0: relationship has <laughs> aged <10 laughs> years.
1: I will always be calling you. Okay. Even two hundred years from now.
0: Well, I won't be able to do much, but you can still try.
1: I'm gonna have cell phones buried with both of us. <laughs> Even though we're both being cremated slash at the body farm. Anyway. <laughs>